0: Let's get our Bibles, we're going to continue on Battles and Beats series, and I want us to go to Judges chapter 7 together, Judges chapter 7. If you're anything like me, you love seeing or hearing stories of people doing seemingly impossible things. I'll give you a couple of examples from just the past couple of weeks to illustrate what I'm talking about. I'm a huge basketball fan, okay? So over the past couple of months, I've been glued to the TV, watching the NBA playoffs, the NBA finals, and I'm not just a basketball fan. I am a Miami Heat fan, all right? Now, all right, don't you boo me. I will call you out from this stage, all right? I'm Miami Heat fan. My wife and I, we used to live in Miami for a short time, and we were actually there in 06 when the Heat won the finals with Dwayne Wade and Shaquille O'Neal and, and that roster of guys. So I've been a Heat fan ever since. And if you are a Heat hater or LeBron hater, I just want to take this opportunity this morning to remind you that your team still lost this year. Okay, so <laughs> you can't really talk a whole lot of trash. But listen, I was on vacation, I'm watching game six. Game six, in which the Spurs are dominating the game the whole time, people are thinking in the final minutes of the game that the series is over, the Heat are losing on their home court. Heat fans in the arena actually started getting up and walking out of the arena with minutes left in the game, right? People are watching the game going, impossible. Miami is done. There is no way they are coming back. Now, I watched the last couple minutes of this game unfold, and what everybody was thinking was impossible started becoming possible. Right now, I'll never forget, five seconds, left on the clock, Ray Allen in the corner, gets the ball, hands in his face, fallen away, hits the game-tagging shot, sends the game into overtime, and Miami goes on to win 103-100 in game six, and then goes on to win the series. Go Heat. Are you with me? Come on now. Yes? <laughs> Impossible. Now, how about this one? Any of you guys see that guy this past week, Nick Walinda, walk on the tightrope over a portion of the Grand Canyon? That's insane. Um, I will say that first. I just want to know who wakes up one day and goes, you know what I would love to do in life? I would love to put a very small wire over a very high place and walk on it for people's entertainment and risk my life for no good reason at all. Like, I wonder who wakes up with that dream. Not me right, because I'm watching that and I'm going, that looks impossible. That looks insane. That looks kind of dumb even, right? And everybody's watching it. And I saw on Facebook, people are posting going, oh my gosh, I'm so nervous. People are throwing up because nerves are getting the best of them. <laughs> but again, that, that's impossible to many of us. We can't fathom even attempting something like that. But the reason stories of people doing impossible things are so amazing is because they captivate us. They mesmerize us. They leave us in awe. Now the story we're looking at this morning in Judges 7, it's a story of the impossible happening. It's a story of God using a man named Gideon to do what was seemingly impossible during his time on the earth. Now before we read about Gideon, let me just tell you a little bit of his story, okay? Gideon was living on the earth during a time in which his people, the people of Israel, the Jewish nation, they were suffering under very heavy oppression from a nation called Midian. Midian and all of their friends, they would come into Israel about the time of the harvest every year for seven years, and they would steal all the food in the nation. They would just wipe it out. They would leave the land in complete ruin. And while that was going on, the Jewish people, they would run and actually hide in caves, and they would wait for the Midianites and all their friends to leave. Again, this went on seven years. Now, I'm going to say something that sounds weird at first, but just stay with me, okay? The Jewish people and this oppression that they faced, um, it, it was due to no one's fault but their own. You see, time and again in the Old Testament, God told his people, if you love me, if you follow me, if you obey me, I will be your God, I will bless you, and I will protect you. But he also told them, if you abandon me, if you disobey me, if you fail to love me, if you put other gods before me, things are going to go really, really bad for you. Well, church, what do you think was happening during the seven-year period in which the people were suffering oppression at the hands of the Midianites? All the things God told them would lead to suffering and oppression. And finally, after seven years, some light bulbs went off, and the people woke up one day and said, maybe we should ask God for help. We don't really like this oppression. And so they go to God, and because God is a gracious God, and a good God, and a loving God, and a patient God, he responds, and he chooses to use this man named Gideon to do something impossible and to free his people from this oppression they were facing. So um, in Judges 7, we find the story of how God did it. I want us to pick up, and we're going to start reading in verse 1 together. Here's what the Bible says. Then Jerubal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. So, Let's stop there, put ourselves in Gideon's shoes for just a moment, okay? Think about this. You're getting your army ready for battle. The people you're getting ready to face are your biggest oppressors, your biggest enemy. And they have an army of 135,000 men, and they are very well resourced. You have a bunch of guys who probably haven't ever fought in their life. There's only 35 thousand of them, and you don't really have many resources at all. And as you're kind of getting your army geared up, God comes to you and says, "Um, your army's too big. You have too many men here. Uh, What I need you to do is I need you to go to your army, and I need you to tell them that if they're scared, they need to go back home and, and not fight in this battle. So Gideon, I can just imagine, like has God lost his mind? What is he thinking? What's he doing? Too small, but he walks to the people anyway, and he says, okay, guys, uh, if you're nervous, if you're scared, you should leave. And 22,000 of the 32,000 go, yep, that's me. I'm out. Thanks, bro. Have fun. I- I'm going to be waiting to hear how it goes. And they, and they jit, So you're left with 10,000 men. Now, I don't know what was going on in Gideon's mind. I don't know if he was freaking out. The Bible doesn't tell us that. What the Bible does tell us, though, is why God did this. And the Bible says that God did this so that no man in the army of Israel would be able to take credit for the victory he was about to pull off. Like, God didn't want the battle to end and for the army of Israel to go, look what we just did. Look how awesome we are. Man, we turned out to be some pretty amazing soldiers. No, instead, God wanted everybody hearing about this battle, watching this battle, all the men involved in this battle, to know that without him, his people would be dead by the end of the fight. And God was so serious about making this point that he actually comes to Gideon again in the next set of verses and he tells Gideon that they need to thin the army out one more time. Read this with me. Let's pick back up in verse 4. The Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them there for you, and any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. This one shall not go. So he brought the people down on the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set him by himself. And likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, and the number of those who lapped putting their hands to their mouths was 300 men, but all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go home to his home. So again, imagine this with me. You just go from 22,000 to 10,000 and then God comes back and he tells you to do something really weird. See how guys drink water. And if a guy laps water like a dog, keep that guy. And so by the end of the water drinking party, you have 300 men left, and God looks at you and he goes, now we're in business with these 300 men. We can actually go and we can defeat the Midianites together. Now, imagine again, you're Gideon. I'm just saying, like, I know myself, and I would probably be going, dude, God, I I think I need to leave with the rest of these guys, right? Like, I can imagine the guys that are still with him, the 300. How did I get chosen for this crew? Like, dude, I don't want to be here. So God, he does Gideon this amazing favor. He looks at Gideon in case Gideon was losing his mind. He says, Gideon, listen, um, before you fight, I just want you to go down to the camp of the Midianites. I just want you to listen to what they're saying. So he gets there, and there are these two soldiers talking, and one of them had this really weird dream. And he's talking to his buddy, and he goes, dude, listen to this dream I had, kind of crazy. I dreamt that this loaf of bread came tumbling through our camp and turned over our army's tent. And he says, I think that's a sign that Gideon, God's man, is coming and he's going to wipe us out. So Gideon hears that. And I love this. The first thing he does, you know what he does? He stops and he worships. He falls on his face and he praises God that God's getting ready to do through him something that seems impossible to everyone around him. He, he worships God, he thanks him. And then he runs back to his camp and he divides his 300 men into three separate companies. And listen to this, they with God's help defeat 135,000 men with trumpets, jars, and torches. Amazing, right? unbelievable i mean this is impossible stuff becoming possible now i think it's easy for all of us sitting in the room this morning to hear a story like this and for our brains to naturally start thinking something like well god must have sat back one day after he heard the cries of his people and said all right that's a big army down there seems impossible i'm gonna go find the baddest dude on the face of the planet to lead my army in battle Like, our brains work that way, right? Like, we think about Gideon, and we probably think to ourselves, he must have been a man of great faith, great courage, great bravery, great skill if God chose him to lead his army against the Midianites. That's how God works, right? I mean, that's how our brains work. Think about the last time you hired somebody to do something for you, whether it was, like, work on your house, uh, fix your car, cut your hair even. Like, I can't imagine any of us sat back and went, Let me find the person who could do the worst job at this and pick them. Like nobody in here hires the 12-year-old kid down the street to re-roof your house, do you? No, you need something done like that. What do you do? You go and find somebody reputable, somebody credible, somebody who's very skilled to do that work on your behalf. But here's what I want you to know about God this morning, and hopefully this is comforting for some of us in the room. When God wants to accomplish something extraordinary, When God wants to accomplish something great, when God wants to pull off something that seems impossible, he rarely goes looking for the most reputable, credible, courageous, skilled person. Rarely. You know who God most oftentimes goes and looks for? Most oftentimes he goes after the least reputable He goes after the coward. He goes after someone who doesn't really seem to have the right giftings required to accomplish the job that he wants done. Most oftentimes, God goes after weak, ordinary, unassuming, messed up people to pull off amazing things that make him known and advance his kingdom in this world in which we live. And listen, if you don't believe me, that's cool. Like, I'm giving you permission this morning to go, I think that dude's a liar. I don't think I believe him. Here's all I want you to do. Just go get this book later and read it. That's all I want you to do. And go read stories of men like Abraham and Moses and David. Go read the stories of men like Joshua, Jonah, Daniel, Jeremiah. Flip to the New Testament. Read about the followers of Jesus, the very men he chose to be his disciples. And you know what you'll find in all of these stories? You'll find story after story of men who didn't quite fit the bill to be used by God, yet God used them anyway. And this very same thing was true of Gideon. You see, when God first came to Gideon to tell him about his awesome plan to use him to free his people, he didn't find a brave man with amazing faith. You know what he found? He found a coward. He found a man who was weak, who was full of excuses, who was reluctant You see, Judges 6 shows us that to be true. I want us to look back at Judges 6 for a few moments and talk about the Gideon we find there, and then I'm going to bring us all into this, all right? If you're taking notes, this is some good stuff to write down. The Judges 6 Gideon, you know what he was? First and foremost, he he was an unqualified guy. He didn't fit the bill to be used by God. Um, Guess what Gideon did for a job? He was a farmer, He wasn't a great warrior, he wasn't a soldier, he wasn't a boxer, an MMA fighter. Since we're in Paulding County, I thought it was worth mentioning, he wasn't a WWE wrestler, right? He didn't do any of those things. He grew crops for a living. When God found Gideon, to tell him about his plan, you know where he was? He was hiding out in his father's wine press, threshing wheat, Gideon had never fought anybody. He, he had never swung a sword at another man's head. He wasn't trained to be a soldier. He was very unqualified to lead this army of men. But look at me, church. God used him anyway. The judges six Gideon. He was skeptical, very skeptical. Look down at verses 12 and 13 with me. The Bible says the angel of the Lord appeared to him, Gideon, and he said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, please, sir, some of your Bibles might say, pardon me or excuse me, if God is with us, then why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. So imagine it. God shows up. Gideon, I'm with you. And Gideon says, impossible. Impossible. God, if you were with us, all of this wouldn't be happening. You see, he's very skeptical of God, even though God is standing in the same room as him. God is talking to him and saying, Gideon, I'm with you. And he's going, you know what? I don't think I can really believe that. We've suffered so much. We've been through so much hardship. I've heard all the stories about what you've done for your people in the past, but I've never experienced that while I've been here on the earth. Like Gideon totally ignores the fact that he and his people are the ones who have walked away from God. God has never left them, but he's very skeptical of God because of what he's experienced in life. Maybe there's some of us in here, man, we can identify with that. We have a hard time believing that God loves us, cares for us, that he's for us, that he's with us because of hardship and trial. I just want to remind you this morning, God loves you more than you can ever comprehend. Circumstances don't tell us that. The cross of Jesus Christ tells us that. And I hope that you believe that this morning. He loves you, and he is for you, and he is with you. The judge is 6 Gideon. He was not only unqualified and skeptical, he was also doubtful. He was doubtful of himself. Look at verses 14 and 15. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Did I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. So um, God goes round two, and he says, Okay, Gideon, listen, I'm here. I'm God, I'm the one asking you to do this, I'm going to be with you, I'm the one sending you, and Gideon's response is, God, I can't do it. I don't know if you've noticed this about me, God, but um, my family, we are the weakest and lamest family in our entire tribe of people. And God, out of the entire family, I am the weakest and the lamest guy. Can't you pick someone else? It's impossible for me to do what you're asking of me. Like I just imagine at this point the excuses are rolling off of Gideon's tongue. And even though Gideon is filled with doubt, guess what? God still chooses to use him. And lastly, in Judges 6, we find a Gideon who's very fearful. As he's wrestling with all these doubts concerning his qualifications, his abilities, he's wrestling with skepticism as it relates to God's presence and care for him. Gideon says, okay, God, listen, if this is really you asking me to do this, I need a sign. You ever been here before? Like, I know I've been here before. Like, God, you feel like God's impressing upon you to do something, to take a risk, to attempt something on his behalf that maybe you've never done before. And you sit there so nervous, so scared, so fearful, and you go, God, if I'm attempting that, you got to give me a sign. I got to know it's you. Like, God, okay, tomorrow it's supposed to rain. What I want from you is a little patch of blue sky with a cloud in the form of the cross in the middle. That's, I'll know it's you if that happens. But like, God, I want the phone to ring, 2.43 a.m. on the dot, and I want on the other end that new song we've been singing, Whom Shall I Fear To Be Playing, and I will know it's you. That's all I need. God, I just need a sign to know that you're the one speaking to me about this. You see, this was Judges 6, Gideon. And he didn't just ask God for one sign. He asked God for three signs on three different occasions. And man, God was patient with him, gracious to him, and came through for him each and every time. And God still chose to use Gideon in spite of his fear and his cowardice. And let me bring us into this. See, I assume that maybe, just maybe, there are some of us in the room today who can relate to this Judges 6 Gideon. Like, we walked in, and we're not so sure that it's possible for God to use our lives for anything that really counts or matters. Like, we're here this morning, and even though, man, we've maybe come to this church for a little while, or we've had these feelings or inklings that God wants me to attempt something or do something on his behalf, like, there's a part of us that just doesn't believe that we have what it takes. Like, we don't feel qualified. Um, we feel really scared about whatever that thing is. Uh, we doubt ourselves, and we're skeptical, skeptical of, of God. We're not so sure that he's with us. Like we're like Gideon in Judges 6, and we really aren't sure if God can ever use our lives to make himself known in this world and to advance his kingdom through us. Maybe for some of us sitting in the room today, like, what you wrestle with as it relates to this whole conversation, it's something small, but it's, like, a really big deal to you. Like, maybe for some of us in the room, it's something as simple and small as giving or serving, Like maybe you've been coming to this church for a while and you would even say, Westridge is my church. Like I love this place, right? And you've shown up for a long time and you have consumed and spectated but you haven't come to the point yet where you've contributed and participated even though you feel like God's going, you gotta contribute and you need to participate. And you're sitting back and you're saying to God, I can't. God, it's impossible right now. God, do you know how much money I make? Do you know all the things I have to pay for and how many things that my kids are involved in? God, I I don't think I can give right now. I just don't think it's possible for me. God, I can't serve right now. I don't have what it takes to work with kids and students. They scare me to death. I know teenagers. They will eat me alive. I, I can't do that. Or, God, I know I can sing and play better than everybody on this stage put together who leads us in worship, but I can't tell anybody about that because that's a lot of people out there, right? Impossible. Maybe for some of us what we have felt for a long time now is God impressing upon our hearts, "Um, you need to share Jesus with your family. You need to share Jesus with your coworker. You need to share Jesus with a person that lives next door to you and you, you haven't done it and you've wrestled and you go, God, it's impossible for me. I can't do that. I don't know what to say. I mean, how do I break the ice? How do I get into that conversation? And you feel like God's stirring in you, but you're going, I can't, I can't, I can't. I'm not qualified. I'm fearful. I'm skeptical. Are you with me? I I doubt myself. Then maybe for others of us in the room, like what God's impressing upon us and what he wants to use us for, it's something like really big. Like maybe somebody in the room today has been wrestling with whether or not God wants you to leave everything behind and go overseas and work somewhere in the world as a full-time missionary. Like anytime God puts that on you, you kind of send it back and you go, God, not me. I can't right now. It's impossible. I can't leave this. Maybe for others of you, um, you're sitting in a job and every day you wake up and go there. You remember that at some point in your life, God put a call on your life to serve in full-time vocational ministry. And you're not doing it and you're wrestling and God's impressing upon you. And you're going, should I leave? Should I walk away? I don't think I can. It's impossible. The money's too good. And you wrestle. Maybe for others of us in the room. Um, God's been putting on us that we need to maybe adopt a child. Maybe we need to become foster parents to kids who are orphans and don't have any parents. But again, every time that comes up for us, we immediately start thinking about why that is so impossible for us. And, And you're wrestling with God again. It's like the Judges 6 Gideon wrestling, God, I'm scared, I'm doubting you, I'm doubting me, and I don't have what it takes to pull this off. Listen, if that's you today, here's good news for you, okay? Look at me and listen for a moment. If this is you, if you can relate to this Judges 6 Gideon, here's the great news. You are in the perfect place to be used by God for amazing, extraordinary things that honor him and advance his kingdom in this world. See, remember what I've already said, that God isn't busy looking for the most qualified, reputable, credible, skilled people to accomplish things on his behalf. But most oftentimes, he's looking for the weak, the cowardly, the unassuming, the unqualified person who aren't really sure if they have what it takes. And you know why that is? Because when God works through Judges 6, Gideon types of people, he gets all the credit for it. That's why he's looking for those people. You see, God's not looking for the guy that can pull something off or the girl that can pull something off and then sit back and go, hey, everyone, look at how awesome I am. Look at what I just did. Look at what I just built. Look at what I just accomplished, right? Right? He's not looking for that person. He's looking for the person that comes in and goes, God, I just don't know, man. I'm so scared, and I don't think I have what it takes. And, and, God, I just want to know that you're with me, and a sign would be awesome. But, God, you know what? I trust you, and you're big, and you're strong, and I believe that you love me because you tell me that you do in this book. And your son died for me, and, God, I'll take a step, and I'll follow you, and I'll do what you want me to do so that you can put yourself on display in and through my life, God. I, I'm here for you to use. That's the person God wants. So if you're not sure about yourself, if you feel unqualified, fearful, doubtful, God wants to use you to pull off amazing, extraordinary things that ultimately point other messed up, doubtful, fearful, skeptical people back to him. Paul tells us this very same thing in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians as he's writing to the church at Corinth. Listen to what he says. He says, consider your calling, brothers, brothers, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what's low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are And why? So that no human beings might boast in the presence of God. God does his best work. Through unqualified, doubtful, skeptical, fearful people. That's who he wants to use. So look at me and listen again for a moment. You need to hear this. I don't care who you are this morning. I don't care about the mistakes you've made. It doesn't matter what kind of family you come from. It doesn't matter who told you some point along the way that you're not good enough and that you'll never amount to anything. It doesn't matter what sin you've struggled with. It doesn't matter what kind of addictions have plagued you. It does not matter what is causing you right now to feel unqualified, skeptical, fearful, or doubtful about what God wants to use you for. Listen to me. God can use you. God can use you not because of who you are, but because of who he is. Church... Listen to me, if God can speak creation into being, if God can part seas, if God can wipe nations off the face of the planet with a single word, if God can destroy an army of 135,000 men with 300, if God can wrap himself in flesh and come and live among us as Jesus Christ and conquer sin, death, and hell on our behalf, I assure you that he can use you for whatever it is he wants to use you for. He wants to use you. He wants to use you to advance his kingdom in this world. So, if you're sitting here today and you go, Well, James, um, how do I respond to that? What do I do with that? First thing I'll say is this You have to have a relationship with God if you want to be used by God for things that honor God and make God known in this world. You see, 2,000 years ago, God did what seemed impossible at the time when, again, he wrapped himself in flesh, came to live among us as Jesus Christ. And he lived a perfect life, died a death in our place for our sins, and then rose from the dead three days later so that you and I could become new people and have eternal life with him. And if you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, you've never believed in what God has done on your behalf through Jesus, that's where it has to start. Like you have to come into a relationship with God by faith. And I know, listen to me, I know for some of us in the room today, we're going, James, that's impossible. Dude, I'm jacked up. I've made mistakes. You don't know what I've done. God can't forgive me. Yes, he can, and he killed his own son so that your sins could be forgiven. I don't care who you are, what you've done. God loves you. He's for you, and he wants a relationship with you. That's where it's gotta start for you. Now next, what do I do? Here's what you do. You wanna be used by God. Here's what you do. You have to take a step of faith. You have to take a step. Let me ask you this question. Um, Do you believe that anything is possible with God. That was not convincing at all. You can, oh, okay, no head nodding. I want you to say it out loud. And you don't have to say it if you don't believe it, all right? Do you believe that anything is possible with God? Yes. All right, do you believe that anything is too hard for God? Do you believe that God can do anything he wants to do because he's God and all authority on heaven and earth is his? Do you believe that God can do anything? Yes. Then look at me. Take a step. Whatever step God wants you to take, you take that step. And I know, again, you're going, I don't know if I have what it takes. I'm scared. I'm skeptical. And doubtful. If you believe what you just said to be true about God, that should be enough for you to take a step. You take a step. Faith. I love this definition of faith. It comes from Warren Wearsby. He says faith means obeying God in spite of what we see, how we feel, or what the consequences might be. So if you just sat in this room and said, anything's possible, nothing's too hard, he can do anything, and you apply that to your life, that means you put what you say you believe to be true about God into action, and it means for some of us we actually start giving. It means for some of us we walk out of the room in a few moments, and we walk to that help desk, and we go, I need to serve somewhere, and I'm scared to death, but you just tell me where people are needed, and I want to do that. It means for some of us this week, we figure out who we need to talk to to find out how in the world we can leave everything behind and go be missionaries. It means for others of us, we get on the phone tomorrow and we call adoption agencies and foster homes. And we go, tell me how I bring in a child into my home who has no mother or father so that I can share the love of Jesus with them. You take a step, even if you feel unqualified, skeptical, doubtful, fearful, You take a step believing that God can use you, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. And we're going to pray in just a moment and ask God to help us to do that. Um, I'll tell you, this whole process of becoming our own church in Cartersville has been one um, that's left me at times feeling unqualified, doubtful, fearful, skeptical. Like there have been times where I've just felt really tired and I've literally woken up and, and said to God, um, God, I, I just don't know if I have what it takes to, to do that. Don't tell my people in Cartersville, all right? They all think they know that I know what I'm doing. Um, I'm, I'm kidding, but but listen, there have literally been times where I'm going, it's just tough. I've cut my grass two days ago and as I'm cutting my grass, I was out in my yard praying and I literally had this thought in my front yard. I said to myself, it would have been so much easier to just stay a part of Westridge and to keep going down that road. But that would have been safe. It would have been uncomfortable. It would have been me choosing to do something that I knew God wasn't doing in me. I would have been disobeying God. Some of you in the room, God's calling you to take a risk, take a step to do something uncomfortable, unsafe to you. And I want us to pray and ask God this morning to give you the courage, the bravery, to take that step, believing that anything is possible with him. Will you pray that with me? Father, I just thank you so much for today, for your word, for the people that we find in that book, God, who we can identify with so easily. We thank you, God, that you're always on the lookout for people like us, God, who at times are weak and faithless and scared. And your desire, God, is to transform us and to use us for amazing things that point other people back to who you are. God, I just pray this morning for that person or those people in the room, God, who have never come into a relationship with you, God. They've never believed that you love them so much that you sent your son Jesus, God, to give his life for them. And I pray this morning, rip down the walls of unbelief, of skepticism, of, of impossibilities, God, and help them to believe. And if you are that person in the room this morning who needs to accept Jesus as your Savior for the very first time, there's no magic prayer that saves you, but I would just invite you to say something like this to God as your confession. Say, God, I know, God, I've made mistakes. I know I've sinned. I know I have not lived up to being the person that you've created me to be. But God, I believe that's why you sent Jesus, to live the life I can't live, to die the death that I deserved. And raised a new life, God, so that I could be a new person and know eternal life with you. And God, I'm asking this morning, just give me that gift of salvation. Rescue me. God, make me who you want me to be and use me for your glory. God, for the rest of us, I pray, God, that you'd help us to take steps in the direction that you want us to go in our lives in spite of fear, in spite of doubt, in spite of skepticism, in spite of not knowing if we have what it takes. And I pray that we would just trust you, the God of the impossible, to do innocent through us what you want to accomplish for your sake. And God, we promise that we will give you all the honor and all the glory as you do that. Lord, we love you so much, more than we can express in words today. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.